Welcome. This is the Sydney Ideas Podcast, bringing you talks and conversations featuring the best and brightest minds at the University of Sydney and beyond. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for attending tonight's event. It is a a great pleasure to see you all here for tonight's Sydney Ideas event. It's called Wild Weather, Lost Land and Persistent Pollutants. Tonight we're going to be examining some of the key findings of the State of the Environment report that was released this week. My name is Fenella Kernaby and I'm the Head of Programming for Sydney Ideas. Before we continue, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of Australia and recognise their continuing connection to land, to culture and to water. Uh, we're here at the, the Charles Perkins Centre Auditorium. It's a great privilege to be here and on this site at the University of Sydney. And we are on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation. And I would like to pay my respects to their elders past, present uh, and emerging. And further to that, I would really like to pay an acknowledgement to the traditional custodians of country where you might live, where you might work, where you might share ideas and connect with other people as well. So if you're in the room right now, and of course, if you're watching uh, online, welcome to you too. And, and I pay acknowledgement uh, to their elders past, present and emerging. And I also extend uh, that welcome and respect to all First Nations people who are present today. Uh, we have a fantastic event for you. And I'm going to allow um, the one and only Vice-Chancellor of the University of Sydney, Professor Mark Scott, to introduce tonight's event and to welcome our speakers. Would you please welcome Professor Mark Scott? Well, thank you, Finello. Ladies and gentlemen, wonderful to be with you at this uh, Sydney Ideas event. And can I also acknowledge traditional owners and the land in which we meet, the Gadigal, and pay my respects to elders past and present. The traditional owners of this land have been educating and discovering here for tens of thousands of years, and I pay my respects to elders past and present. Um, I reflect uh, uh, from time to time on the, the, the nature of news. I can see around the room there are lots of people from media who've worked in media organisations, and, and I found um, when I was editing newspapers that um, no matter what the day was, there was always a front page story. That was the story you put on page one. Um, And sometimes you'd look back at old newspapers and you'd find, why on earth was that story on page one? It was an insight into the truly ephemeral nature at times of news creation that that day, for whatever reason, that story had a focus. But pretty quickly the world moved on, the circus moved on, uh, and the next day there were other stories and the cycle continues on. I suspect that in the future people will look back at newspapers this week at the State of the Environment report and there will be a clarity of insight and understanding about why that was news, why that was particularly important. And I suspect the themes that have emerged, the scientific insight from the researchers and the authors of the report that's documented, um, will truly stand the test of time as to where we were at this point in human history, where we were at this point in our national history, and the crucial decisions that faced us as a nation from what the science was revealing to us. And so given the importance and the enduring nature of that news that's been revealed through the report released this week, um, how tremendous it is here at the University of Sydney, we have this opportunity to hear from the authors and to engage substantively with the findings and the nature of their work. So it's my job uh, to quickly introduce you to the members of the panel tonight and then to sit with you to experience their insight and to hear them engage with each other and engage with us as members of the audience. Um, I'm delighted, first of all, to uh, introduce Professor Emma Johnston to you. Uh, As of this week, uh, Professor Johnston is the Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Research here at the University of Sydney. I was saying to her earlier that that I think we do a media clipping service here, as many organisations do. She only appeared in 70 stories on her second day here at the university. I said, we expect you to continue uh, at that pace in the years ahead. As you all know, uh, uh, Professor Johnson is a highly awarded and world-leading expert in marine science and conservation, um, and she is the co-chief author of this State of the Environment report that we've all heard about. Joining Emma on the panel tonight is Dr Terry Janke, a solicitor and director of the Terry Janke and Company and one of the two report co-authors along with Dr Ian Cresswell, Chair of the Western Australian Biodiversity Science Institute. And also joining them and an author of uh, part of the report as well is Dr Sarah Hill, uh, well known to many in the New South Wales Government. She's the CEO of the Western Parkland City Authority. Um, We're honoured to be able to um, sponsor and host this event at the University of Sydney tonight. 
We have an ongoing commitment to sustainability here at the university. It's just uh, 12 months since we learned, launched our dedicated whole of university um, sustainability strategy. We've already made great strides. As of the 1st of July, we've switched to 100% renewable electricity across all our campuses and colleges and associated activities in and around the university. We have targets to achieve um, net zero emissions by 2030, zero waste to landfill by 2030. Uh, we are Australia's oldest university. We believe we're Australia's finest university. We want to be exhibiting leadership for good and leadership in this space. So will you welcome the panel members and we look forward to hearing them all tonight. Thanks for being with us. Okay. Emma, can I start with you? 70 stories this week. Are you tired? Are you okay? It's your first week. How's it been going? Yeah, look, I think I have a bit of management expectation, you know, expectation management to do with the media team. I'm thinking like, <laughs> oof. No, it's been fantastic. Look, it really is thrilling to have um, what is, what I think is a really reasonable amount of attention paid to what is a really, really catastrophic situation for Australia. Um, you know, a situation in which we have twin climate and biodiversity crises, um, in which we need really rapid, urgent action. Um, we can't afford to be, you know, burying this anymore. Mm. And previous reports, there has been a tendency to have the report tabled in Parliament and then everybody goes away and the team disperses and, you know, things go on as usual. It's gratifying that the Minister has used this report this time round. The new Minister has used this report to you know, really draw attention to these issues, but also as a platform for her work over the next few years. It's awkward that it was on day two <laughs> of my role as Deputy Vice-Chancellor <laughs> Research that the new minister decided to release it seven months after we gave it to the previous minister. Um, but we'll, we'll work it out. You, well, congratulations for getting through this hectic week. Um, very quickly, you're the Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Research. Uh, if you can, in a sentence, say what you're most excited about in this brand new role. I know you've only just started. What, what would it be? Oh, look, the Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Research is the most wonderful, wonderful job. Um, and it's no coincidence that I'm really passionate about, you know, a big problem like environmental management and I'm the Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Research because really what the whole portfolio is about is supporting and being a champion and an ambassador for the solutions business, which is research. So research at the University of Sydney is addressing real world problems, but it's also getting at some of the most fundamental questions at the really edges of the known universe in a huge array of disciplines. And we have teams of researchers who are drawing disciplines together as work as well, working on some of the greatest challenges that the society faces. And my job is to look after them and to be their champion and to to help guide them. And so it's it's a great privilege and an honour to be joining oh, the team. It's fantastic to have you at the university. So so moving on to the State of the Environment report, and we'll hear from each of our speakers, of course, as well. Uh, the words sobering, grim, bleak, I've heard these uh, said a lot over the last 48, 72 hours as well. Top line overview, how significant is this report? What does it tell us really about the, the state of our environment? Yeah, look, um, it is really grim. It's It's confronting. The, probably the simplest way to explain it is in the 2016 report, which uh, Ian and I were both involved in as well, we, and, and in all the reports, this is the sixth report, so since 1996, all the reports, there's a lot of detail about predicting the impacts of climate change. It's said in every single report, these, these, these extreme events and um, the, uh, the more gradual effects have all been described, but they've been described largely in the future tense, I think in the 2016 report, we got around to saying, look, we, we're pretty sure we, we're seeing this happening. Um, we're seeing these species shifts, et cetera. We're seeing a slight increase, we think, in storm erosion, et cetera. This report is, is just a whole litany of case studies over the last five years of climate change, putting an extra layer of pressure on already stressed ecosystems. Um, to the extent that we had to introduce an entire new chapter on extreme events. So an entire, and each, by the way, the overview report, which is the summary of the other 12 chapters. Um, yeah, I was trying to read this so, before tonight, but I, yeah. that was it 270 pages? Yeah, yeah no, but no. it's all online. So if you want to get into the details of the report, it's, it is very accessible and you can dive deep. We go through the pressures and the state and the management effectiveness 
This is the overview, but then there's 12 chapters dealing with everything from Antarctica to inland waters and, and urban environments like Sarah. So yeah, the stark contrast is that every environment um, that we consider and that we assess, every situation is deteriorating. And the primary cause for that is climate change layered on top of existing problems. Okay, it is definitely bleak. Um, what's the response been like this week, Ian? I've heard quite a few. You've, I mean, I think Emma's done about 70 interviews. I've heard a few with each of you guys as well. Tell me, Ian, how's it been going? Uh, the response has been very good. And in fact, I've been trying to, to de-bleak some of it because, <laughs> because I'm a little bit, little bit worried that especially some of our younger audience might feel like it, there's no hope. Um, everything's terrible and, uh, and therefore no action. So what we do find in the report is uh, places where we're starting to see greater involvement of citizens. So citizen science has, uh, is much greater now than it was five years ago. Um, Terry will talk about our Indigenous co-authors and the involvement. That for me was personally a great honour and revelation to actually get to understand the value of wellbeing from the Australian environment. And so my message this week has all been about getting people to reconnect with the environment at any way at the local level, because we do know that, um, that if, you, if you take care of country, country takes care of you. Mm, for sure. Uh, Terry, maybe this is a good opportunity to hear about how the State of the Environment Report has really shifted um, the reporting uh, as such and, and with Indigenous co-authors across uh, every, every chapter and including an Indigenous chapter. So tell me a bit about how this has been a game changer. Okay, well, it's the first time that there are Indigenous voices in just about every chapter or every theme of the report. Uh, so there were nine contributing Indigenous authors, uh, all leading scientists and community members and researchers who put their voices to it, but also a lot of community voices as well. So there are a lot of yarns, so I'm saying that it makes the report really readable. And um, the spirit is there, you know, that connection to country is a very strong story through there, caring for country. And uh, as we embarked on working together as a group of non-Indigenous and Indigenous collaborators, we were thinking, how do we put traditional knowledge, Indigenous science with Western science? And we uh, developed a collaboration guideline that we would work together and points that were raised, we would match them with you know, each, each particular area. And yeah, those guidelines became the way that we, you know, we worked towards it. Uh, it was the first time, I'm sure um, there'll be a lot to be said about how we did it, but I, overall, I'm very proud of the report. For sure. Um, Emma, a question came through a bit earlier about the process, and I know Ian also alluded to it as well. What, what was it like for you to, to go into this new process of writing this report, including this Indigenous co-authorship? Yeah, it was fantastic. Um, so the, the guidelines that Terry's talking about were really key to us being able to work together, I think, because we essentially established a very respectful, safe space for everyone to be working together. Um, we agreed at the beginning that we weren't going to separate the, the, the stories and the knowledge. So we were, we've, we've interwoven um, the two knowledge systems or the many knowledge systems realistically. Um, and we had agreed ways in which expertise would be acknowledged through that process and that we would gather information from some, from sometimes areas in which there was only an oral tradition. So mm. um, the consultation with experts was fantastic. So the difference that it made as well for everybody was that we were able to more powerfully communicate connections between people and country. Um, because Western science has a tradition of separating everything into smaller and smaller and smaller bits, you know, reductionism. Um, and in the environmental space, we've been, um, you know, expert at telling a story only about the biophysical or the physical or the chemical situation. And that makes it easier for people to feel removed from that environment and feel like they can stay safe even if the environment is changing. But it's actually not true. You know, we are deeply, deeply connected. And I think, Terry, you should talk more about mm, Indigenous sure. connections to country, but they forced us into a really much better space about talking about human well-being. Yeah, mm. that was a new thing for the mm. report. Uh, mm. So much of it 
focused on the health and well-being and that spiritual connection that Indigenous people have to uh, land, seas and sky country came out very strongly. And we did have uh, consultants who uh, went out and spoke to people. So we've got actually a lot of Indigenous voices in the report and people talking about this deep spiritual connection and how the, uh, the impact of, uh, I guess, of colonisation and uh, environmental laws or the systems limiting access to country, but also as they watch changes to the environment, how that impacts them and also detailing disaster things, particularly in the heritage space, such as the blowing up of Jukin Gorge, you know, it was devastating for Indigenous people, but for many Australians, so it, it, it details that. So um, it, it is that caring for country, which is a strong message in the Indigenous theme, but it, it sort of goes through the whole of the report as well. Mm. And it wasn't easy, actually. So a lot of our scientists were actually found it quite difficult, as, as did our Indigenous co-authors, of actually trying to do that melding. So as scientists, we often, well, we're, ta we're taught not to be emotional, we're taught to only have reference facts. And so trying to meld our, our, our facts that we knew from Western science with Indigenous stories, which is a different form of fact, was actually challenging. And I think everybody, all the authors, grew from the experience. Mm. Maybe, Sarah, this is a good opportunity to yeah. hear from, from you, uh, the co-author of the, the chapter on, on urban. Mm. Um, what was the collaboration like for you and listening to what Terry has to say as well? Well, well firstly, let me say as a new kid on the blog, <laughs> it was pretty overwhelming to, to think that within 100 pages you'd be writing around the, the state of the urban environment, of which, you know, according to the census, is about 1,800 also different urban locations across our great country. So to talk about the urban environment and all of the factors that are affecting it and, and um, the state of it was, was quite, a, quite a, 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 you know, a challenge in its own right. To work with people though that really embraced the idea of not just a, a built environment as it was considered in the prior reports, but to have the support of um, my fellow authors here to think about a system, a more holistic approach, right. rather than breaking it down to buildings and, and tarmac and asphalt. <laughs> you know, this is about a whole system that works together and it is about the natural and the built environment coming together to create a great place. But working with an Indigenous author who just opened my eyes to a whole new layer of thinking around our urban environment. So simple but really powerful you know revelations to me is that we don't have four seasons here in Sydney there's six and why are we not designing our, our cities to recognize that why are we not respecting that knowledge that we have have and certainly what it, what it means for uh, embracing new designs new approaches to to our urban areas so for me, it was a real awakening, but also importantly, a shift in the thinking around our urban areas and this critical interplay um, and interconnectivity that they have with our natural environment. For sure. Um, Terry, maybe at this point, and just to acknowledge the fact that Terry actually has to leave early because she has another function to go mm -hmm. to, um, the, you, as well as co-authoring the entire report, um, and all the chapters, of course, that are, that are featuring the Indigenous um, authors. Um, there is the Indigenous chapter. You talked about it a little bit before, but could you talk us through some of the key findings from the Indigenous chapter? Right, yeah. Well, the Indigenous chapter really goes into detail about what caring for country is and uh, defines that, goes deep into it, and establishes that Indigenous people have this obligation or this stewardship to country that is a fundamental cultural obligation. So flowing from there, you can see how uh, the management of it, uh, Indigenous people need to be involved in those key decisions around the environment. And it's not news in this report, the Samuel Review detailed it in the review of the Environmental Protection Biodiversity Conservation Act, that there needs to be more involvement of Indigenous people in decisions about the environment. So too with heritage, and uh, in light of the heritage disasters that have been happening, it really showcases the inadequacies of the heritage laws that we have in Australia and the need for change there. Uh, the report is not all sort of sad news. One of the good news stories is the role of Indigenous rangers, and there are 
you know, something like um, 2,000 rangers working in Australia on country, uh, caring for country. And the minister has recently announced further funding to that. Um, Indigenous protected areas are, are growing um, in the years 2011 to 2016. It grew, it grew by 4.5 percent. The minister's announced more now. But um, one of the things to also um, highlight is that the Indigenous estate is around 57% of the country. So Indigenous rights are pertaining to uh, you know, land and seas, 50% of the country. So that really puts Indigenous people in a position to be able to manage country, care for country, use traditional knowledge. And traditional knowledge is also a key theme of the report. The question uh, that we ask is, why aren't we using more Indigenous knowledge solutions to the, the environmental challenges that we face. So we see the example in cultural fire management coming out in, in um, the wake of the uh, bushfires disasters, uh, more and more people looking at cool fire, fire burning practices. But that's just an example of how Indigenous people's knowledge could be used. We have Indigenous rangers, Indigenous women rangers working on the eradication of feral cats in the desert, you know, uh, lots of um, co-management opportunities there. So um, Indigenous people want to have much more of a role there. And um, I think there's another key issue in the data that gets mm. collected. A lot of the scientific um, uh, analysis that gets done using data, it needs to shift a bit to take into account Indigenous sort of measures. And that was a big thing for me in being one of the writers putting it all together and saying, how do we, in the next one, look at how the data can be um, more aligned to this Indigenous worldviews? Mm. Um, well, congratulations on the report, Terry. And I'm sorry you have to leave us, but could we please thank Terry Janke for her time? Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, a rock star. As we know, our authors have been really incredibly busy this week, so it is uh, amazing that Terry was able to join us for the first um, 20 minutes. So thank you again, uh, uh, Terry. Um, continuing on, um, we're going to go through some of the key findings uh, with our speakers right now. We'll discuss the report in more detail, but let's just quickly um, go through some of these key findings, uh, Emma. Um, you've touched on it briefly already, but how is climate change impacting the state of our environment in new ways? What are we seeing? Yeah, look, um, so we've got changing frequency, intensity, um, severity, everything, variability, even the, even how variable the extreme events are is changing. So it's intensely difficult to predict into the future now. And I just want to do a call out to all of our climate scientists across the country and across the world, in fact, and these in particularly our ocean climate scientists who are working to do coupled ocean climate modelling, um, which is really empowering us to be able to make better predictions of what's going to happen to these extreme events. But the truth is uh, they're happening faster than a lot of predictions were made mm. um, in the changes are happening faster. And Australia is really at the forefront or, the, or taking the brunt of a lot of that. Um, that was predicted that Australia would be at the forefront of a lot of the climate change um, problems. Uh, for a number of different reasons, but uh, the extreme events have really taken a lot of us by surprise. Mm. And just to give you an example and, and to explain some of the ecological background behind this, and I think it won't be hard for anyone, even if you don't have any ecological background, if you think about your garden, if you disturb your garden really quite a lot and quite frrequently, um, the things that tend to thrive are the, are the weedy species, species that can you know, grow fast, um, reproduce quickly, they die young. Um, you mean my chickweed, <laughs> that I just have a lot of it? Your yeah. rock chickweed, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Okay, got it. <laughs> um, so what we're seeing, because the frequency of disturbance events are kind of natural in one sense, and indeed in Australia, across our vast continent, um, many of our ecosystems have evolved to deal with quite extreme events, extreme droughts and, and wildfires, etc. But the, the intensity and the frequency is changing to the extent that they haven't really experienced those sorts of disturbances in their evolutionary history. Um, so not only are we getting individual species being impacted, but the whole ecosystem is changing. And the prediction is that we'll be moving to a much more weedy set of species that are, are gonna thrive in this sort of situation. What that means, um, say for example, in the Great Barrier Reef, where we've seen mass bleaching events happening 
2016, 2017, 2020, and indeed 2022 as well, so four in the last six years, um, is there's not enough time in between those disturbances for a fully mature uh, ecosystem to develop that would support the full range of biodiversity that you would see in a mature ecosystem. So you would see like an old growth rainforest. You're not, get, you're not going to be able to get your old growth coral reefs because you need a minimum of 15 years between major disturbances to mm. get that. Um, and now you're seeing this frequency. Um, so the prediction of a bleaching event every two years has been made with, in the 2016 report. I remember putting this into the report and it was, it was made that by 2050, we may see bleaching every two years. And everyone went, whoa, that's bad, but oh, I can't believe that's going to happen. And now you're 2020, uh, 2022, and you're already talking about yeah. it. Yeah. So that's one thing that's happening. Um, the other thing is the emergence of new, brand new impacts that we've never seen before. So I'm a marine scientist myself. When the wildfires happened in 2019, 2020, I had a team of fantastic researchers, some of whom may be in the audience, um, working from Townsville down to Bermagui, looking at our very important productive estuaries and um, looking at a whole lot of conditions and, and biodiversity within those estuaries. And the, and the bushfires happened and I was standing on Coogee Beach with literally ash washing up around my feet, mm. saying this is going to have to have an impact in the coast and the estuaries. And I looked online and there was nothing documented, documenting any previous impact of wildfires in those sorts of ecosystems. So I pivoted the, the research team to um, essentially go out straight up to the bushfires six months, 12 months, 18 months after, and document the first ever global situation in which we have dramatically changed the ecosystem condition of our estuaries and the biodiversity. So that's just something that no one ever thought to even look at. Mm. Um, potentially something that will supercharge our estuaries to be very um, much more productive than usual. But in certain estuaries where the water quality is already problematic, it's going to prime them for very large phytoplankton blooms and potential fish kills. So you know, this, that's just one example. Um, but over the next decade, we're going to see a huge increase in the number of unpredicted ecological impacts. They're going to have to change the way we harvest from ecosystems, the way we manage ecosystems, the way we benefit from them in all sorts of ways. Okay, so all right. I if, get I get the sense that you could talk all yeah. night about that. Yeah. that, <laughs> that would you would... like to hear <laughs> a bit more? Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> Maybe, but, but, I, yeah. I'd love some un, some deep leaking, but I don't think we've got time for that. Um, yeah. Let's talk about the urban then. So thank yeah. you, thank you, Emma. Mm. You know, between you know climate change, we've got the pandemic, of course. We know that our cities and our towns, Sarah, have suffered yep. some pretty dramatic stresses as, as well. So yeah. what, what are we seeing? In well, our environments. Yeah, I think it's really important to pick up on that point around the changing shape of, of, of not only our natural environments, but, but indeed our urban as a consequence of what we've experienced as, you know, several one in 100 year shocks in the last year, let alone last mm. five years. So, you know, extraordinary um, shifts and changes in how we live. You know, and I'd have to say what we found in the report is some of them are very positive. You know, as, as a city planner, trying to encourage people to travel less, work more at home, you know, embrace their local communities um, and certainly walk more and enjoy, enjoy green spaces in their local area more is, is something that we could never have made happen at such a, an accelerated rate. Um, so some things have been incredibly positive. Others, as we know, have been hugely challenging, and, and many of those natural um, and, and you know challenging climatic uh, you know events have um, increased in frequency and put huge stress and strain underneath the cities. What I'm finding interesting, though, is the interrelationship between our, our bigger cities, which are growing, and indeed about 43% of projected growth is going to occur in Sydney and Melbourne alone. Mm. So that just gives you an idea about the bigger cities are getting bigger um, and really the implications that that has to sprawl, but also density, uh, health and wellbeing and so forth. And biodiversity. And biodiversity, <laughs> absolutely. And that's that's the key point because really these are not ecological deserts. These, you know, very much the point the, the report um, points to the fact that, you know, huge numbers and indeed, um, you know, a very significant proportion of endangered species in terms of plants and, and animals live within our urban areas. Mm. We're not, we haven't traditionally designed our urban areas to account for them. Mm. We're getting better at it, which is the How, how can we get better at it? There actually were some questions that have come in about yeah. the peri-urban areas 
areas yeah. uh, and threatened species. Uh, interesting to hear it's also about our flora as well. A yeah. few questions about koalas, um, but how can we better manage this looking to the future? Yeah, well, I, I think first things first, you know, that there is a, a real interplay between, you know, the, the density of development and, and locating in areas that we're not expanding our cities all the time and mm. that we're really rethinking where the right locations are to, to um, you know, locate our urban environments. And in fact, the fascinating thing is we're not taking a national view of this. We are um, really, and, and certainly the, the um, research shows that each state, each territory is doing its own thing, you know, accommodating growth and, and projections in its own right. But there has not been a coordinated approach to this for some time. So in a, in a first instance, where are we directing this growth and change to occur and how are we taking that comprehensive view of it? You know, second of all, how are we thinking about uh, our urban environment when we are developing it and designing it in a way that embraces the natural and, and, and certainly not just clearing out um, our open spaces, but really creating habitat um, that brings nature back into the city. Mm. COVID uh, and, and the last few years of, of many of the challenges we've been facing have really showed us how important it is to people for their health and well-being to experience that nature. And indeed, the nature and, and you know, ecology within our cities is where most people get access to it. So the, the good news is that although, uh, you know, tracking it, we've lost a lot of green space over the last decade. In the last four years, there's been a very concerted effort to start bringing it back. Mm. And you see a lot of the questions online, you know, how can an individual make a difference? There's a heck of a lot of ways that we can start thinking about how we live, how we travel, how we structure our lives. Um, to embrace that back to the mm. to our urban areas. We might try and get back to that question a bit mm. later on. You said biodiversity, uh, Ian, so you've uh, thrown you in the deep end here. We've lost quite a few mammal species more than any other continent. There are pretty grim statistics. Um, how serious is the decline? Tell me about it. So, so it is serious, and, and of course the numbers relate to what's what we know, listed species. Uh, we still actually only know 30% of Australia's biodiversity. So 70% wow. remains unknown. Wow. Um, so we're actually losing things that we don't know. Um, so we're, we're only be able to count the things we know. I think for the answer, part of the answer on the urban and the peri-urban is about us reconnecting back with nature. So, you know, there, there, there has been a trend to stop having native gardens and going back to roses and lawns and watering and, and formal gardens. Um, and as a consequence, um, in the, particularly in the peri-urban areas, we're still seeing massive amounts of clearing of remnant vegetation, mm. which is sometimes the only place left for, for quite a few different species. Mm. So there's a for me, the message is about getting Australians to reconnect with nature. And, and for, for me, the, the indigenous uh, element it has been fundamental. Because if, if we can actually connect with indige indigenous culture, then that actually takes us straight to Australia's uh, plants and animals, flora and fauna. Uh, their deep love and connection and, and commitment and honour mm. uh, is, is heartfelt throughout the report. But actually, it's a way for all of us to actually have a richer culture, uh, like and willing to share and and appropriately uh, have Australia become a better place. So, for, yes, it, there's lots of shocking statistics, um, and and as I said earlier, I'm concerned that people don't give up because you know things are, mm. are grim. But at the same time, I do believe that we can get a whole lot better and actually quite quickly. Mm. So um, we have amazing community organisations already existing in Australia, like Landcare, like a whole lot of uh, wildlife rescuers. And it's more about us actually joining in. So uh, my plea is for everybody to actually seek out their local group and to find a way of, of better connecting to the real Australia. Mm. Absolutely. Emma, do you want to add anything there? Yeah, look, I think um, it was interesting to see uh, how the Minister spoke about this as well, acknowledging the problems. And, and these aren't just the problems of the last government, right? These are the problems since mm. uh, colonisation mm. that have taken place. And um, land clearing has not significantly declined. If we could get our, a national handle on land clearing, if we could have cumulative assessments 
of the thousand cuts that are happening, which Ian's talking about, um, then we would actually be able to reverse that horrific trend of losing the remnants that are left. Um, and, you know, we are going to need legislative reform in order to be able to do that. We're going to need national standards. We're going to need consistent ways of measuring. Um, mm. So, you know, you, could, you might get six or eight different ways of measuring how much land has been cleared across the nation, depending on which state and territory you're in. Mm. Um, so there's those sorts of issues. But in relation to the species, um, threatened species, you know, it is just so much more expensive to try and bring a threatened species back from the brink than it is to prevent that species getting to that threatened stage already. And I think when you hear, and you will hear over the coming months, arguments around how little money we have um, to spend on the environment because we're in such a tragic economic situation, everybody needs to think about how much more it's going to cost if we don't act now. And, we, you know, we have been saying that as scientists since... <laughs> forever um, in the biodiversity space and, and for at least 40 years in the climate change space. But it, the reality really is hitting home now. Um, mm. So, for example, over the last five years, we had uh, an increase in the number of threatened species of 8%. And that was despite millions and millions of dollars being spent on trying to turn around the trajectory of a, of a list of priority species. Um, it's very hard to do restoration projects, rebreeding projects, rewilding projects. <coughs> We, we have some fantastic scientists and ecologists out there and they're trying their, their darndest, but it's, it's hard and it's expensive and it doesn't always succeed. So Australia did turn around the trajectory of 21 species over the last five years, which is brilliant. But our list of threatened species went from 1,780 or something to 1,920. Mm -hmm. So we're adding more quickly than we're reversing the trajectory of. And when you talk about protected areas, you know, one of the most efficient ways to protect species is to protect habitat mm. and sufficient amounts of habitat and connections between plots of habitat. And when you talk about that, you immediately step into ecosystem-based management or um, protected areas management or otherwise known as national parks, marine parks, basically spatial ways of managing your environment so that you can organise where your activities take mm. place, mm. like urban development, mm. and, you know, where your fishing is allowed, but you also have space for ecosystems to be in their natural state with their natural number of predators, etc. And um, across the nation over the last five years, we've had a tendency to announce more protected areas and, indeed, the overall total area of protection, under protection, has increased. But if you look closely at the fine print, the level of protection within each of those areas has declined. So we are setting up paper parks that confuse people and don't really do much for the environment. Yeah. Okay, so we're good yeah. at putting them on paper, but we're not very good at actually achieving them whatsoever. Is they, that correct? You, they've got to be well enforced. They've got to be supported by the local community. And um, they actually have to have protections in place. So they can't just be a marine protected area that allows, for example, trawling. Okay. Mm. How are we doing in terms of our protected areas, though, our national parks and reserves, Ian? Can you tell us a little bit more about mm. how that actually is going? I mean, Emma's just touched on it a little bit, but sure. give us a bit, bit, of, bit of a sense of it. Um, so the, the Minister announced today that the new Australian government, uh, yesterday, that the new Australian government would um, uh, 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 fall in line with, with a global target of 30% um, protected areas, both on land and sea. We do, we do have 30% of our marine areas across Australia, uh, more than 30% un under some form of protection. But as Emma said, one of the issues that we have to grapple with is the zoning. So uh, what we need to make sure that those, the management effectiveness of that zoning. In terrestrially, we've seen an increase in Indigenous protected areas, mm. but unfortunately Indigenous protected areas, and that's fantastic. So full stop, fantastic, great. Uh, unfortunately, they don't have as uh, uh, the same amount of funding and they don't have the same continuity um, as, say, a gazetted national park. So that's a huge issue that um, Indigenous uh, custodians deal with is that they're then give, given an Indigenous protected area but not necessarily forever and also not, ev not necessarily with funding. So, so there's a, a funding issue there. And then our, um, our sort of... Uh, national parks and reserves, um, that has slowed down significantly in terms of the number that we've had. Um, new South Wales has actually gazetted uh, several new national parks in the, in the last few years, which is fantastic. Um, on, the, on the other side of the coin, 
Um, I'm sorry to say that New South Wales is second in the country for land clearing. And in the period, I think it was 2017, 2019, 70% of the clearing didn't have a permit. Wow. So uh, th th there was no way of finding authorization for that clearing. And, uh, and so there's, you know, we have this complex layer of state and federal laws. But overall, for all of the clearing in, the, in, the, in a 15-year period, 93% of it wasn't even referred to the federal environment minister because the, the, the job of, of a proponent who wants to clear is they have to decide, oh, is this significant? Oh, no, it's not significant, so therefore I don't have to refer it. So there's, there, but what we do know is the cumulative effect of, so maybe me just clearing my uh, thousand acres on my farm mm. uh, might not mm. necessarily be a problem, but if everybody's doing it and everybody is putting in pivot irrigators, then we're, we're, we're seeing a much bigger effect. Um, I was very disappointed to hear uh, several um, uh, farmers came out against the, the, the announcement by the minister and saying that the report hadn't acknowledged the fact that farming has improved. We do acknowledge that, the far that farming has, a pr has improved and there's some fantastic work being done in, in uh, reveg re and regenerative agriculture, but it's pretty small. Mm -hmm. So it's a great start but it's a very big country. Yeah. <laughs> so um, New South Wales is not immune. I'd actually say New South Wales is second worst. So therefore, um, what do we do? We need to get better combination of our laws at the federal level, at the state level, and then also empower local councils because they themselves don't have either the funds or the capacity and the expertise to actually know what they're managing. Mm. Uh, some of them I'd great. love to hear, Sarah, some of your mm. thoughts on this from a local council, local government level as well. Yeah, and it's really interesting. I'm going to pick up two of these points around really just that, what we call in my world, the line of sight, you know, from Commonwealth to local government and back up again. And I think what we're learning increasingly in urban spaces is just how important that, that tri-level of government coordination is to actually getting things done. Mm. Otherwise, you're getting bits and pieces of the puzzles that don't actually work well together. So the urban chapter talks a lot about these examples, uh, you know, really where Commonwealth and state government comes together with local to make things happen. City deals are a, a case in point. Um, but I think also looking at more remote areas, a, a, a really important program I've been involved in is, is Roads to Home for Indigenous communities that, that literally did not have a road to the home so that they could get uh, you know, uh, uh, sewerage or or refuse collection or even uh, a hearse to the the um, you know the cemetery. So, you know, there's this sort of these gaps in our systems that really cause enormous challenges uh, for the health and well-being of of our communities. As part of the the report and in, and sort of more direct response to your question, we um, we sent a survey to to every local council in the in the country. Um, we had a pretty remarkable response to um, to the surveys. A lot of common um, a lot of common uh, approaches around yeah, regreening and and certainly urban forests um, and and um, you know putting vegetation back into to our urban areas, which was um, hugely encouraging. Um, but also this um, everlasting challenge between the density versus sprawl and and really trying to target um, the the right mix in that regards. And this will always be the challenge for us. And, and I see on the Slido, you know, a couple of questions to me around flooding in Western Sydney. Um, and I think that is um, that challenge where, you know, those before me, you know, really rezoned parts of Western Sydney, which in hindsight now you say should not have been. Mm. And certainly on my watch, um, in my former role, we really pulled back a lot on that. Let's not exacerbate the problems that we have. But how do we address these areas that are already rezoned where people are, are living? Uh, and, and, you know, uh, you know, Western Sydney is particularly challenged as an area that is flood liable, but also, um, you know, is, is the hottest you know, city in the world uh, on some days, 50 degrees, um, mm. you know, parts of our city reached, uh, you know, last year. So extraordinary challenges around heat. Um, but really so much of it comes back to the um, coordinated approach trees, water in the environment, mm. designing our buildings to, um, to, to be um, lower in terms of embodied carbon, more efficient in terms of their energy use, and really trying to turn what is some of the biggest challenges in Western Sydney 
into a, a way of showcasing to the world how we can be truly innovative and do things differently, balance our ecology, um, balance uh, all of the needs that we have of our, of our citizens at the same time as doing things better. So there's a big theme about just don't build back, build back better, greener, mm. smarter, uh, all of those things that, that we aspire to do and that we can really showcase to the world. Um, and that's the challenge. Absolutely. Um, thanks for bringing up some of those questions yeah. early too, by the way. We're going to go to questions in just, a, in just a moment. <laughs> we, we mentioned extreme events because there is a chapter in, in there um, and you've just brought up the, the level of heat in, in Western Sydney and you know we're seeing this around the world. Mm. So tell me a bit about uh, the chapter with the extreme events and why this was so important to include it. Yeah, look, I don't think there's a centimetre of Australia that hasn't been touched by climate change over the last five years. Um, and there are vast swaths that have been touched by extreme events, sometimes compound extreme events simultaneously happening or happening in direct sequence, like the bushfires, then the floods that we had, if people can remember that. Um, so that, that's causing immense damage. I just have to say, if you want a bright spot, one of the things that happens when... <laughs> I do, actually. Yes, a bright spot. Um, you know, one of the things that happens when we get these big rains, especially those that reach well into the centre of Australia, is that they cause breeding pulses of a large number of really important species, including our water birds. So, you know, there's reports of something like 40,000 breeding pe um, pelicans wow. as a result of the recent oh. um, floods. So yeah, so in, in a natural cycle, at a natural frequency, um, in, in relation to evolutionary history, these can be really positive parts of the Australian environment and ecosystem. Indeed, they can be quite necessary to the survival of some mm. of our species. Um, so it really is about changing the frequency and the intensity. And I guess I want to talk about the fact that for Indigenous people in particular, um, but for everybody, the, where we have already built or have communities, these extreme events tend to impact mm. much more heavily. Mm. Um, and so a lot of what we need to do going forward is not only um, be, be very climate aware um, and much more climate resilient in the way that we support our communities, but we're going to have to move change, mm. you know, really, really be agile. So there is, um, you know, a whole research area of managed retreat. And that's managed retreat from coastlines, but it's also from rivers, of course. Um, and helping ecosystems to survive, but also helping humans to survive by ensuring that we we buy people out of places. So this isn't, this cannot be an unfair way to transition. Yet, yes, Australia has left things way too late and we've made things much more expensive as a consequence, but we can't now leave the most vulnerable people in the lurch. Right. So governments are gonna have to step up and invest in um, change in a way that um, makes all of our systems more resilient. Mm, fantastic. Okay, let's get through some questions. We've got quite a few here on Slido. Thank you so much for sending in your questions. Uh, we've got a, a whole number, and I've got a couple that the audience have sent in a bit earlier, so I'll try and weave them in too. So if we can try and do our answers as quickly as possible, I know it's a big Rapid subject. Fire. Yeah, um, well, <laughs> that's with, not with, my strength. Yeah, actually. with respect to <laughs> the context. So you know, we'll see how we go. Okay. Um, question number one, number eleven. People have voted this one. So how do we address vested interests, developers, etc., influencing decisions within legal bounds, but in a way that is increasingly unethical as the environment is lost and degrades. Lost and degrades, I would say. So I'm going to yeah, give that to you. That to me. I mean, yeah, yours. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> look, excellent. Uh, yeah, yeah, and it's a slightly topical issue. Um, look, for me, it, it's um, it's simple to say, difficult to do, but we need to have an agreed over, overarching view of what we want to achieve in our urban areas and a very clear understanding of our ambitions. And they have to be strong ambitions around, you know, uh, uh, you know, around, you know, net zero cities, um, really driving forward, better quality design, improving health and well-being, and so forth. So we need to have a clear and aligned view on that. Then we need the research, and the, and the reports talk a lot to the research and the data to give that very clear evidence around that and that great um, then transparency about how we achieve that. So it sounds like a very high level response, but certainly, um, you, you know, systems, um, and it's very difficult for a developer or anyone with a vested interest to move around something if there isn't a very 
if there is, uh, isn't a very clear and transparent approach to doing things. So, the, you know, I, I always say transparency is our friend in what we do and in certainly in planning cities, um, but also having a clear and aligned view of what good is and what our outcome is that we're trying to achieve so you don't get lost along the way. Mm. And I think that bigger picture view of our urban areas, whether they are our big cities or, or more um, remote and, and um, you know, smaller settlements is, is absolutely key. I, I, I just stress the importance of place though and that's a very strong theme that comes through um, and really focusing you know like our oceans focusing around these areas and recognizing that it's no one organization developer government's role to to address these outcomes we have to come together and focus around a place I'm, I'm very blessed in my day job to focus around Western Sydney, the enormous challenges it has, but I have a vested interest in making sure we achieve the best outcome for for our newer city, but also for our citizens and, and certainly those that, you mm. know, that can't speak but might be living in, in these areas and are often forgotten. So it's a really important balance. Emma? Look, completely agree, but I do want to stress also, I mean, open access to data about the environment mm. and real real-time availability of data to all citizens um, would be very empowering mm. um, and it has been where it has been made available and I think it's going to be increasingly important for us to make just critical decisions about day-to-day -day life. Do we go out today or is it too smoky? Mm -hmm. um, there were 400 ad additional deaths related to the bushfires that were associated with smoke exposure. Um, and, you know, as you, as you all recall, not many of us had a little app saying, oh, don't go out today. We were making judgments based on the news radio. Mm. Um, so open access to, and better access to data. And another mm. bright spot of the report is that we say their available data is increasing. And mm. um, fantastic work by our national critical research infrastructures, by the Bureau of Meteorology, by the National Environmental Science programs to make that data available. Um, but secondly, it's education. And I know that I've got a conflict of interest here than promoting education <laughs> as part of the University of Sydney. But um, if we don't have a highly educated, critical thinking society, then information that is not evidence-based is going to be promulgated really easily mm. um, and it won't be interrogated and people will be making poor decisions. And I think it, you know, it's not about just the sources of information that are coming, it's about how those bits of information are critically received. Um, and so we need to be really, really supporting independent evidence-based education free for all for as many people as possible across the country mm. um we've got lots of questions so let's try and do some quick answers that was a bit of a long yeah, answer so, yeah yeah no, good. so some really quick questions there's one that came in earlier is how can we explain extreme weather events to young children there's some other ones mm. here about how can we yeah. uh help young people feel that their efforts are making a difference there was also another question that came through which is uh, helping young people deal with climate anxiety uh, and maybe just some quick comments to talk to that Sure, and, and it's pretty simple. It's about actually not being overwhelmed by being acting locally and, and feeling comfortable in the environment. So, so yes, Australia um, can seem like a, um, a difficult place to live, but actually um, it, it, when you, I'll go back to our, our, indigenous, um, our indigenous elements, when you're actually at home in the environment, then it's, not, it's just home. So, so you can get rid of anxiety by better connecting. Um, and so it's a pretty simple message, which is actually go out, <laughs> start to understand it. I agree with Emma actually very much so. The more you understand your environment, your local environment, the more you value it and therefore the more you care for it and therefore the more you'll fight for it. So it, uh, educational knowledge is really the key. Mm. And by, by starting to understand your local area and then the wider area and then, uh, you know, the region, then then you'll feel, feel more comfortable. I, I don't think kids need to be afraid, actually. I think kids, we're, we are, have a beautiful country. It's fantastic. It's, I encourage everybody just to get out there. And, and it's, yes, things are, are in decline, but they're, they're coming off a high base in many places. We have beautiful river systems. We have beautiful mountains. We have beautiful parks. Uh, it's just it's it's about getting out there and actually participating in it. Mm.
There is, there is hope. Sarah, did you see another question in there that you thought was good for you? I, I you've just, got, you've I, got quite a few. I feel yeah, like we need, yeah, we need yeah, to bring yeah. you back again, I think. No, I, I, yeah. And there's, there's much to discuss. I just love the comment in here is, you know, does the environment need managing or, or, or do people? And, yeah. I, and I think that talks a lot to <laughs> the, the message we were trying to say in our report is that it's not about, you know, the built environment versus the natural. There is a really important ecosystem here and, and both influence each other's well-being and, uh, how we can work together in that way because without a wonderfully healthy natural environment, we're not going to have wonderfully healthy people and, and that interplay is really, really key. So mm. I love that. That, that. But there is an interesting point here that I think we will be moving further and further to having to manage ecosystems if we want to have them uh, have the full range of endemic diversity. Um, and, that, and I say that in particular, we haven't talked about invasive species, but um, once you, you let a rabbit invasive species out, um, there is virtually no way of having a natural ecosystem unless you are managing the environment by either weeding or culling that invasive species because mm. otherwise you'll just get full dominance. Um, and, you know, our scientists and our ecologists are working on increasingly inventive ways of, of doing that. There's a spectacular um, chemical that comes from a plant that only cats are susceptible um, and all our native mammals are not. And so that's often used in traps. And I, like, that's an, a really innovative way of, of doing non-destructive um, reduction of cats. And of course, cats are responsible for a huge number of extinctions across Australia. Mm. But the idea that we can just step out of the way and let the ecosystems look after themselves is a 1970s idea. Um, you know, we can't just remove the threats by moving away. There's going to have to be increasing amount of active management. Mm. Um, I'm going to really quickly go to the top two questions and I'll just get each of you to do a comment here because um, I think I think they're a really good way to finish. And again, thank you for all your questions uh, watching online and, of course, here in the room as well. So the second question is together, maybe a silly question but from, the, from the bottom of my heart. Given we know so much and the message and the data has been so clear for so long, why is change so damn slow and our ambition so low? But the other question we've already touched on, but I hope to finish on a bit of a positive note is, can we make a difference? What are the actions that we as individuals can do and can take for the benefit of a better future? So I thought that first question was an interesting one, but let's finish with that final one. What can we all do, the priorities for a better future? Um, Ian, let's start with you, because deep, deep leak it for us again. Yeah, <laughs> uh, my encouragement is to actually join with with local groups and, and try and, and just reach out to other people. So there are amazing organisations in Australia like Landcare. Uh, it, it's actually been, had less funding than it, than, than it needs, but it, that, it actually needs people. Mm. So I, I just encourage everybody to, to participate. And, and I, I don't think, I actually am very optimistic. I think Australia has a, a, a clever society where we're actually rich compared to you know, just about every other country. Um, we have the ability to make amazing changes. We have great scientists who come up with new innovations all the time. Um, what we actually need is the population to get behind that. And that, that's the bit that's missing for me, is there's this large bulk of people who are perhaps not as well connected to what this beautiful country actually is. And, and I just encourage us all to find ways to do that. Absolutely. Sarah? I've got three parts yep. to my answer. For those who know me, I think in threes all the time. The first thing I'd say is change is bloody hard. And, uh, and you know, that's why it takes time. But when there is an urgency, and I think we're all seeing this now, and I think we are turning a corner, you know, change does happen. So I'm, I'm like you. I, I had um, an Indigenous woman who is... Uh, uh, working in our office at the moment as part of an intern program and she ran Plastic Free Tuesday um, this week and, you know, it was incredible the response that she got to that. So here is, you know, to many of the points in these questions, one individual that's come into our organisation, you know, have, after a month of being with us is already, you know, driving this message strongly forward, very well received in our organisation. But I, I see we're at a turning point here with this next generation coming through saying, uh-uh, we're not going to put up with this anymore. So I think that's really exciting and really encouraging. But then I think there's so many things, and, and the report talks to this in the Irvin chapter, that we just don't know yet and really what are the longer-term implications of many of the things that are happening. We're, we're changing the shape of our cities, the nature of our infrastructure, 
simple things around where energy is located in the country. We're now starting to change our networks from north to south. And, you know, we are in many ways at a turning point that we've got to take this very seriously. But I, I strongly believe the next generation, my kids aren't going to tolerate this. Mm, for sure. Uh, Emma, last last word. Yeah, look, I think, um, you know, really try and stay on top of what's happening. Things are going to change really, really quickly and the pace of change is going to accelerate. Um, and that means that as a society, we're going to have to change, which is which is difficult. Um, but the more of us who understand what those drivers of change are and what the best options are that are being created by the scientists and the sociologists, et cetera, um, and are pushing for those evidence-based changes, then the better off we will be. I do think that um, if we cared as much about our environment and our ecosystem as we do about our own human health, we wouldn't be in the situation that we're in. So I think there's a little bit of an element of not only mm. removing that divide between environment and, and people, which is what we've tried to do in this report mm. with the, the strong help of our Indigenous co-authors, but there's also just stop being so self-obsessed because it won't help in the long run, you know. If we don't make that connection, then um, we really will be on a very poor trajectory for a long time to come. You're sounding negative again. Yeah. <laughs> well, the psychology of it, that, that we used to be told, don't be negative, don't be alarmist, because the psychologists um, of science were saying that just puts people off. Now the psychologists of science, there's another whole group of them that are saying, actually, it's really effective. Yeah. <laughs> there you we go. All need to know. You've got both tonight. <laughs> um, well, I've learnt a lot and it's been delightful finding out. Thank you for everybody watching online as well. I really appreciate your questions. Ladies and gentlemen, would you please thank Emma Johnston, Sarah Hill, Ian yeah. Creswell and Terry Janky. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast. For more links, resources or the transcript, head to the Sydney Ideas website or subscribe to Sydney Ideas using your favourite podcast app. Thank you.